Hello, and welcome to the Cancer Care Connect program. At this time, all participants are in the listen-only mode. Later, we'll conduct a question-and-answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the program, please press star than zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this program is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's program, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you, Trinitha, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Telephone Education Workshop, Balancing Cancer and Careers, Living and Working with Cancer. This is a very important program, and I know there are many of you on the call today. Um, certainly work is a very critical, important part of each of your lives. This is a program that has been long planned and thought about um, by Cancer Care and Cancers and Careers, and really I'm delighted to see this actually happen today. Um, now, this is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and 18 other organizations that have really helped us to reach so many of you. And we have on the call today over 1,048 people. So there were really lots of you on the call today. And you come from all over the United States. You come from large cities and small cities, from suburban areas, as well as rural and frontier communities. We also have international participants from Australia, Canada, Guam, India, Syria, and Sweden. So clearly this is a topic that reaches far beyond. It's a global issue for all of us. Now I'd like to turn your attention for a moment to the materials that you received from Cancer Care. And in those materials, there's an outline that our speakers have prepared. And there is information about all the different organizations that have collaborated to make this program possible. And there's lots of information about those organizations. They all provide free services and resources for you, so it's a kind of a nice thing for you to all have. In addition, there is an evaluation form in your materials, and I would ask you to take a moment at the end of our program today and please do complete that evaluation form. When you think about it, who but each of you can best tell us at Cancer Care what you'd like us to offer in terms of telephone workshops, the topics you'd like us to cover, the themes, what's important to you. Indeed, today's program is really based on your recommendations, and so I really, really can't thank you enough for your taking a moment and completing those evaluations. Now, today's program is made possible by support from Roche, and I really want to thank them for really supporting this program and this topic. It's such an important one. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to start by introducing our first speaker, Dr. Ruth Oratz. And Dr. Oratz is the Women's Oncology and Wellness Practice Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine, New York University School of Medicine. And Dr. Oratz is going to address advances in cancer treatment and side effects management, talking with your healthcare team, and managing cancer treatments while working. Dr. Oratz has been a frequent presenter on our telephone workshops, and we're delighted to have her with us today. Dr. Oratz? Thank you so much, Carolyn. Um, I'm going to begin with some of the medical issues that are related to cancer treatment, and today we're talking about all different kinds of malignancies. So um, although we're, we're focusing on the balance between managing your cancer while you're working, this really is a very broad-based kind of conversation. Cancer treatment has really changed dramatically in the last couple of decades, but there still are some basic modalities that we use for treating many types of cancer, but not all, because each cancer is different, each patient is different, and the specific treatment plan is going to vary depending on the clinical situation. But at some point along the way, if you're diagnosed with a malignancy, you may have surgery at some point in your treatment, there may be a consideration of radiation therapy, and then there are the systemic treatments which we call either chemotherapy or 
hormonal therapy or biologic targeted agents. And each of these cancer treatments have associated with them side effects and possibilities of complications and also the time that's required for recuperation. For individuals who present with solid tumors like breast cancer or lung cancer or colon cancer, very often surgery might be the first step in treatment. And as you're learning about your diagnosis and getting more information, surgery is very often the, the, the first thing that happens. So taking time off from work to have an operation is generally not something that is very disruptive in terms of the workplace. And depending on the extent of surgery, then, of course, there's the issue of recuperation. So different kinds of surgical interventions may lead to the requirement for either a day or two away from the workplace, but sometimes it may be several weeks of recuperation, depending on the surgery. So that's the first step. After that, there's the whole issue of what's the next treatment. Is it systemic therapy? Is it radiation? And if so, what are the details of that treatment? Radiation therapy is usually given in a schedule where the treatment is administered every single day, Monday through Friday, for a period of anywhere from two weeks, even up to six or seven weeks. So having a treatment that requires you to come into the medical center or the cancer center every single workday for many weeks, certainly we know upfront is going to be um, a major disruption in your attendance at work. The other kinds of treatments, whether it's chemotherapy or oral treatment with um, oral medications that are taken as an outpatient, or the targeted biologic treatments, some of those are intravenous, some of them are also in pill form or oral, offer a lot more flexibility in terms of scheduling. So I think the very first thing that we have to understand when we start off on this journey of, oh no, you know, now you have a cancer diagnosis and you have your whole life is turned upside down, and of course the initial priority is trying to understand your prognosis, developing an appropriate treatment plan with your healthcare team, but thinking right up front about what are the modalities that are going to be part of your treatment plan, trying to anticipate, first of all, the time constraint, the schedule that treatment will require, and that, again, for surgery may be several weeks of recuperation or you might be back at work in a couple of days. Remembering that radiation therapy is daily treatment and the other systemic therapies can either be done as most often done as outpatient, but could be once a week, twice a week, or once every two or three weeks, depending on the schedule. So that's one thing to think about. Another issue related to the advances in treatment and side effect management are that we've really made progress. So not only are our treatments more effective in terms of controlling the cancer and hopefully curing it, the treatments themselves are easier in terms of the physical side effects. Now again, we're talking about all different types of cancers and many, many different types of treatments. So it's difficult to generalize. But overall, we have made a great deal of progress in managing side effects compared to where we were 10, 15, 20 years ago. Nausea, which is a big component of many chemotherapy treatments, 
is really, really much better managed with the new anti-nausea, new anti-emetic treatments that we have. And hopefully, people will be able to function without having a great deal of nausea. We also have access, if we need to, uh, to use medications that help to maintain the blood count, the white blood cell count, and even the red blood cell count, so that complications that used to be a serious side effect from chemotherapy treatment, low blood counts, fever, risk of infection, severe anemia, these are managed much, much better and, in fact, prevented now if we use some of the new um, growth factors that are available. And that also allows not only for a better quality of life during treatment, but for you to be able, hopefully, to continue to work to whatever extent during your treatment without risk of infection and so on. So our goals with treatment are, of course, to control the cancer, to minimize side effects, and to make sure that we're managing side effects in anticipation. So this means a lot of communication. And you're going to hear us over and over again this afternoon really focusing on communication. First, talking with your healthcare team. And then as the other speakers continue, you'll hear that talking with all of the other people around you in your workplace and in your community and at home will help you be able to find that balance between managing your illness and working in a way that's productive in your career and in your home life. So talking with your healthcare team is critically, critically important as you try to plan ahead for how to integrate this new part of your life, taking care of your cancer and your health, while you're trying to also move forward with your work and your career. The first thing is make sure that you get information and you give information. Understand your treatment options and understand what the treatment is going to involve. Ask a lot of questions. How often do I have to come in for therapy? Again, if it's radiation, is it every day, Monday through Friday, for how many weeks? Can I have my treatment on a flexible schedule? If I need radiation, can I have it at the beginning of the day and then go to work afterwards? Or at the end of the day, how will I feel in the first week? How will I feel in the third or fourth or fifth or sixth weeks of that ongoing therapy? So there may have to be adjustments as the treatment progresses. And that's true also with chemotherapy and some of the other biologic therapies that we give. If it's going to be several weeks or months of treatment, try to map out a program with your healthcare team, but being mindful of what the requirements are for work. So you can have a schedule in mind. And then, as you'll hear later, when you're trying to communicate with the people in your workplace, you'll have an idea of what adjustments or what flexibility there is in your work environment to accommodate the requirements of your treatment. So although we want to certainly prioritize taking care of your health, we want to make sure that you understand what the options are and that you talk to your healthcare team about the flexibility in the treatment schedule and the treatment program as well. Once you actually begin treatment, then you'll see how you're doing. So of course, we have as much conversation as we can before treatment begins about anticipating what the side effects might be and hopefully preventing them. But nonetheless, we can't exactly predict what's going to happen to each individual 
on every single day uh, during the course of therapy. So we can plan as best we can, but we have to all keep our minds open to the idea that things may pop up as we go. And then we may find that we have to manage side effects or make adjustments in schedules or doses or the work plan in order to accommodate all of this in an ever ongoing walk on that tightrope of, of balancing taking care of your cancer and all of the other activities in your life. So talking to your healthcare team back and forth and having access to your physician and to the oncology nurses. I'll tell you in, in my own practice, my oncology nurses are excellent at really working with our patients to try and anticipate side effects, manage them as they go, and have um, ongoing and um, open communication, you know, sometimes on a daily basis if it's required. Telephone, email, um, sending in faxes may also be effective if you can't get into the office or if it's hard for you to get in touch with someone. Um, again, depending on the, the nature of the practice. So use all of these forms of communication and try to outline that in advance with your healthcare team. And again, as I'm closing, I would just like to reiterate that we've made so many advances, not only in cancer treatment, but in how we manage side effects. So that you don't have to think, oh my goodness, I'm never going to be able to work at all during treatment. Many of you will be able to. But as you'll hear as we continue with the program, keeping your mind open to the fact that there may have to be adjustments on both sides, on the part of the medical management as well as how you're balancing work in the workplace. So flexibility and communication is key. I think you're going to hear from our next speakers about some of the um, details about what goes on in the workplace. So I'll send it back to Carolyn. Well, Rob, thank you very much, Dr. Oretz, for just an excellent presentation, really very informative, a wonderful overview in terms of the management of a cancer during treatments and some of the important issues of communication. I know there will be questions during the Q&A for you. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Deborah Wolf. Deborah Wolf is an attorney. She's Senior Attorney, Legal Health, New York Legal Assistance Group, NILAG. And Deborah is going to address um, understanding your legal rights in the workplace. Deborah? Thank you, Carolyn. And yes, I'm going to discuss laws that protect people while working, um, while they need to take medical time off, and during their medical leave. And I'm going to focus on federal laws that apply to all 50 states, but I encourage the, the listeners to learn about their state laws as well, and I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. While employed, there are a number of laws that offer protection and allow a person to continue working after a cancer diagnosis and during their treatment, but also protect them if they need to take additional time off from work. The first law is the Family Medical Leave Act, also known as FMLA. And FMLA applies to employers with 50 or more employees, and the employee must have worked for 12 months and have worked 1,250 hours during the prior 12 months. However, that can be non-consecutive hours. And um, once somebody qualifies for FEMLA, they're given 12 weeks of job-protected leave, which means that they can take up to 12 weeks off for a medical reason and their employer cannot take any adverse action. Um, they have jobs 
protection. And during this time, their benefits will continue, although they must pay for their por whatever portion they're paying for health insurance or other benefits would continue, but the employer will continue to pay their portion. And an employee is guaranteed a, a return to their job or a similar job with the same pay. What's important to know about FMLA leave that I think a lot of people aren't familiar with is that it also can be used for what's known as intermittent leave, which would be used for uh, doctor visits or for somebody who has treatment that's scheduled at regular intervals. And it's very useful if somebody has used up all their sick time, but they need to take additional time off and they need that job protection. So, for example, if somebody has a treatment um, every Thursday afternoon, they can request intermittent FMLA leave so that they can take off every, every Thursday afternoon and not have to worry that um, they're going to be fired um, for uh, not being able to work. An employee generally requests FMLA leave through Human Resources, and Human Resources usually have specific forms that they require that be completed by the employee, and that would include a, a medical certification of serious illness that needs to be completed by the employee's physician. And FMLA leave is also available to family members uh, who might need to take time off to care for a spouse, for a child, or for a parent. FMLA leave is not paid, but an employee can supplement that with any sick time that they have available. They can supplement that if they have vacation time available. And also um, short-term disability, if that's offered by the employer or if it's required by state law. Right now there's five state laws that have mandatory short-term disability for employees. So uh, somebody who's taking FMLA leave may have um, a way to have their um, have pay continue during the time that, that they need to take off. The second law that I want to discuss is the Americans with Disabilities Act. And the Americans with Disabilities Act, or the ADA, applies to employers with at least 15 employees. And it applies to a person who has a disability if it substantially limits a major life activity, and cancer can certainly be a covered disability under the ADA, if it limits a major life activity such as walking, working, sleeping, eating, um, and other activities as well. And there's two uh, major benefits to the Americans with Disabilities Act. The first is that the employer must give the employee a reasonable accommodation if the employee requests this. So somebody can go to their employer and say, I can do my job, I can do all the essential functions of my job, however, I need you to accommodate me in this way. And examples could include physical changes in the workspace, um, such as a lower desk. It could include a shorter workday. I've negotiated accommodations for clients so that they um, can have a later start in the morning if they have side effects from medication that make it difficult for them to get out of um, to get out of their home earlier in the day. Um, more frequent breaks for snacks. Um, even working at home one day a week, if a person for, uh, can perform the essential functions of their job from home, it really is a negotiating process. Um, a person has to be able to do their job with the accommodation, 
but the ADA provides that an employer can't refuse an accommodation. They can come back to the employee and say, this may not work for us for this reason, but let's talk about what accommodations will work for both of us. And also an employee, if they request an accommodation, and find that either that accommodation isn't working for them or perhaps they need something additional, they have the right to go back to their employer and say, this isn't working for me for this reason and let's discuss it a little bit more and find out, you know, what's, what's going to work. Um, I always suggest that an employee request an accommodation in writing and have a supporting letter from their doctor stating that the employee can perform the essential functions of their job and that the accommodation is uh, medically necessary. Um, this is one of the areas where it's important to check your state laws. For example, in New York, we have a state human rights law that gives a similar benefit and requires um, employers to accommodate employees, but it applies to employers with four or more employees. So it offers broader, broader coverage to more employees than um, the Americans with Disabilities Act might offer. The second uh, benefit of the Americans with Disabilities Act is that it prohibits discrimination in the workplace. So if somebody feels that they're being treated unfairly after a medical disclosure, they have some avenue of, of recourse. Um, I always suggest that if a person works for a company that has a human resources, that they first go to HR and and discuss this with somebody at HR because it really is human resources role to educate um, other employees and supervisors who might not understand the, the laws that I'm talking about that, that do protect employees. But if somebody complains to HR and there is no resolution, a person can file a complaint with the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and generally an, a complaint has to be filed within 180 days. The EEOC will investigate and determine if the complaint has cause. And actually filing a complaint with the EEOC is, is a required prerequisite before somebody can file a lawsuit under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, I think actually my eight minute my time is up, so I want to um you know, remind everybody that we will have questions afterwards, and I, I will be available to answer questions. Thank you, Deborah. That excellent presentation, and just you know, very informative. I think people often don't understand all of the legal rights that they have in the workplace. Those are hard-won rights, um, and they're important to be aware of and to utilize. So I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A, and thank you for that very meticulous review of that. Um, I also want to say to everyone that we will be sending to all of you. Um, a, a tip sheet about employment rights um, that you'll be getting probably in a couple of days um, as an additional handout. So um, it'll come either by mail if you were getting things by mail or electronically to you all. Um, our next speaker is Patricia Spicer, and Pat is an oncology social worker, and she's program coordinator at Cancer Care. And Pat is going to address effective communication with coworkers and supervisors and coping with your emotions at work. Pat? Uh, thank you, Carolyn. Um, whether you've chosen to continue working during your treatment or you're returning to the workplace after your diagnosis and treatment, there are many issues that remain for both your employer and for you. So I'd like to touch on some of these common concerns and perhaps give you some helpful hints that might make it easier for you to come back to work. 
At present time, 80 million Americans are living with a cancer diagnosis, and at least 80% of these people will return to the workplace. So that this has become a major issue uh, within the professional world of everybody, and some patients don't just don't have the choice of leaving the workplace, whether they would like to or not, because they need to maintain financial stability and the, their benefits to continue to provide for themselves and their families, and that this time their resources can be particularly stressed. Most people are better informed about cancer today, but there are still some myths that persist, and some of those are related to the workplace. There is the old myth that survivors are unproductive and that people with cancer are poor risks for promotion. However, we know that this is not true. We know that the changes in, as Dr. Oretz um, indicated, the changes in treatment options and uh, the ability to control side effects have made it much easier for people to continue to work or to come back to work as even if they continue treatment. It's important that you as an individual, though, evaluate your own readiness to work and discuss it with your health care team. Are you going to have physical limitations that might make it difficult for you to come back to your job. Um, if you are a nursery school worker and you're required to pick up toddlers and if you've had surgery either for breast or for lung cancer, it may be difficult for you to do that because of the, uh, the surgical healing that is necessary. So you might want to talk to your doctor, your uh, employer about the possibility of a reasonable accommodation. You also have to look at your own psychological res uh, readiness. Very often we think that we're more ready to go back to work than we actually are, but the stress of being in the workplace and trying to maintain your family life as well as dealing with your treatment issues can be more difficult than you expect. You may be a little bit more likely to feel emotional whether you're at work or at home, and you need to make sure that you're ready to, to deal with all these stresses that the workplace um, entails. Also, you, if you've been out for a while, you may need to think about refreshing your skills. Unfortunately, in today's world, um, many people can still work from home, so you may want to take a little time to look at what you can do from home and ease your way back in maybe going back part-time or, if you are still working, dropping down to a part-time schedule. You also have to look at other emotional reactions that can occur. There is a sense of relief when treatment is over. There is also a sense of hope that my life is going to go back to what it was beforehand. And there can also be some awkwardness about how do I reintegrate myself into the work world and to, to going back to with my colleagues, to being with my colleagues. And there can be some apprehension about returning to work or how people at work are going to perceive you. So some of the things that we suggest that you might want to do is begin by sharing some information with maybe a friend or a buddy who has been at work or one of your colleagues so that they can kind of prepare the other people in the workplace. Um, most of the people who go back to work or who continue to work report very positive reactions that the workplace is a source of support and that having their colleagues aware of what's going on for them relieves some of the stress of returning or being there. Some people have experienced negative reactions, and they may include being treated differently 
And sometimes there is even resentment because somebody has been asked to take over uh, parts of your job or because you are being provided with accommodations so you can go to treatment. The best way to deal with that is to try and talk it out with the person directly, uh, to talk about, uh, again, uh, what is happening for you. You don't have to uh, go into great detail, but to try and get them to understand Many people don't have a good understanding about treatment, what treatment is like, and very often just talking to the person directly can help. If that doesn't help, talk to a manager or to a supervisor or the head of your human resource department. They can very often share, uh, perform the buffer role for you and help by educating the other employees about what it's like to be returning or to continue in the workplace. If you have been out of the workplace, either because of your surgery or because of treatment options, stay connected to your workplace during the time you're going to be out of work. Try keeping in contact with some of the people that you work with, either phone or email, or if you feel strong enough, uh, try lunch or a coffee break with some of them. Keep your coworkers informed about how you're feeling so that they can anticipate that you will become uh, be coming back to work and uh, that they will be seeing you soon. Increase coworkers under, of understanding. Again, you kind of have to become the educator here so that they know that you're going to come back to work, you're going to be able to perform your work tasks, and you appreciate all the support that they have given you while you're not here. Sometimes uh, people have told us they bring in a basket of cookies or some muffins or something when they come back and kind of make it an informal social occasion so that to ease themselves back into the workplace. Remember that the people who have worked with you want to be supportive and they want to help you, but they sometimes don't know how, so you're going to have to be the one that tells them what it is you need and how can they best be of help to you. At Cancer Care, we'd like to be of help to you, too. So if you have questions or concerns or would like to join a support group, you can contact us directly at 1-800-813-4673 or online at www.cancercare.org. We're more than ready to help you answer your questions, deal with your emotional concerns, or talk with you about any concerns you have about going back to work. That concludes my presentation. Thank you, Carolyn. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Pat, for just really an excellent presentation, really identifying many of the issues in terms of communication at work and coming with one's emotions and all the services that one can access from cancer care. And I know there will be questions to you during the Q&A. Thank you. And also thank you for your compassion on the call as well. Now our next speaker and final speaker before we take questions is Kate Sweeney. And Kate Sweeney is um, Executive Director, Cancer and Careers, Cosmetic Executive Women Foundation. And I have to say that Kate and I had talked about a program like this for many, many years, so we're delighted to see this happen today, come to fruition. And Kate is going to address practical solutions to address workplace challenges and tips for creating a plan to continue working. Kate? Thank you, Carolyn. We're excited to be here, too. Um, so we all know that balancing cancer and work brings a whole host of logistical questions. So our mission at Cancer and Careers is really to bring together all of the resources, sources of support, information, and practical advice out there in one place so you have a one-stop shop to get everything you need to know about combining work and cancer. And the information and advice I'll cover today can all be found on our website, cancerandcareers.org. So 
The first thing that you need to plan about is sharing the news at the office. Who do you tell, your boss, HR? So our advice is really to start with the person that you're most comfortable with, and usually that will be your direct supervisor. But you should also consider talking to your human resources department because they have information about your company policy, experience with other cancer survivors in that company, and they'll have valuable advice about how to tell people and what to expect. And if you're uncomfortable telling your boss initially, you might want to start with HR to begin with and have them guide you. The next thing you need to figure out is how to tell. And sharing your diagnosis doesn't have to mean a long emotional conversation with your supervisor if that's not the type of relationship you have. It's important to gauge your company culture. So if it's warm and fuzzy, kind of a family place, then you might, want, you might be more emotional. But if it's more of a corporate environment, you'll want to keep it more business-like. And then it's up to you and your personal style if you're really outgoing or shy, as you know, it'll be different as to the amount of details that you share. But before you even begin the conversation, you want to get as much information as you can from your doctor about what to expect. Ask all the questions that Dr. Orat said in her speech. Um, ask how your surgery and treatment will affect your work schedule. And know what your company policy is. So now's the time to dig out that employee manual. You'd be surprised how much information there is in there. Um, and you want to know your legal rights, um, even if you're never going to use them. Then you need to be proactive and present your boss or HR with your game plan. So you want to begin by providing your diagnosis, your expected course of treatment, always with a caveat that that could change, of course, um, and your emergency contacts. And then when you'll be out, bring in a calendar if necessary, if you need a visual guide. Um, and then go into a plan about how the work will get done. So what projects are outstanding, who will cover you, or a plan of how you're going to do the work yourself. And some of the strategies that you might want to suggest are working from home, as Pat suggested. This could be part or full time. This eliminates a draining commute and enables you to lie down when necessary throughout the day. And the key to a successful telecommuting relationship really is to structure the arrangements, set down the hours that you'll be working, how you'll be reachable, email, phone, figure out what equipment needs you, you need, a phone, computer, printer, access to office servers, and really lay all that out before you get started. Another option is to implement a full-time but flexible schedule so you continue working full-time but maybe start your day later or end it um, earlier. Um, or take time out during the day um, to go to appointments and make up the time later that day or later in the week. And finally, another strategy is to work out a part-time schedule during all of the treatment and recovery period and then return full-time. Um, and then as part of your plan, you might also want to identify a point person. And this is someone you, you trust who's willing to be sort of a centralized source of information about you, your health, and schedule. And your point person can save you from constantly having to update everyone on how you're feeling but they can also be your go-to person to find out what's been happening at the office while you're out. You should also think about your physical workstation and how to set it up so you're most comfortable and don't have to expend any excess energy. So if a special chair is more comfortable, bring one in. Think about a backrest or a pillow and arrange your desk so that phone, files, printer, et cetera, are all within easy reach. And if you're easily distracted, then make 
sure that your space is decluttered, as decluttered as possible. Um, and this brings us to another question that comes up a lot, which is how to maintain focus. Um, and a few of the suggestions that we have for combating that are to learn de-stressing techniques when you're feeling overwhelmed, like deep breathing and stretches to refocus. When you're feeling really overwhelmed, write down a list of priorities. Then turn off your email, clear everything off your desk so you can concentrate on the first task at hand. And finally, uh, the most important, take notes on everything so you have it in writing if you forget. So these are just a few of the tips that you can find on our cancerandcareers.org website. And we have hundreds of articles on everything from how to organize your insurance claims to buying a wig that looks professional. And you can also download uh, or order free publications in English and Spanish. And there's also information for caregivers, healthcare providers, and employers. So we hope you'll visit the site. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Kate. And your site is a wonderful resource for everybody on the call. And you have all the information about the site in your materials. Do visit the site, download the materials, order the publications. They're terrific. Well, we now have time for questions. We actually have a lot of time for questions. So I'm going to ask Janitha to bring all of our speakers on board and then to explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Janitha? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press the one key on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Our first question is from Eileen. Go ahead, please. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, Eileen. Great, thank you. Hi. My, my question has, and thank you, a very informative call. My question has uh, something to do with, with both communication and, and perhaps legal uh, implications. I had been recently excised from a position and then got my diagnosis of breast cancer, and although I am not nearly completed through treatment or anything, I am kind of curious as to how to go about approaching looking for a job after treatment, you know, is it recommended that you're upfront with regards to your cancer diagnosis as being part of the reason why you have uh, perhaps had an extended unemployment period, or is the economic downturn good enough and we shouldn't approach the subject with regards to the gap in employment? Any kind of feedback or advice in that regard? That's an excellent question, Eileen. That's really excellent. Deborah, could you start that question off in terms of, in terms of the uh, interview process itself? Sure, and I can certainly talk about the a person's legal rights. And, and the ADA actually governs what an employer can ask during the interview phase, and they're not allowed to ask medical questions. Um, they can't ask, you know, if somebody has a gap in their resume. They can't ask if it's for medical reasons. They're not allowed to ask if somebody is taking any medications. Um, during that initial phase, they are prohibited from from asking anything relating to whether or not a person um, has even has the need for a reasonable accommodation. Um, once somebody is hired, it can be a conditional offer based on passing a medical review, and it's the medical review has to be something that is required of all incoming employees. They can't single one person out who might have a gap in their resume and say, you know, we want to ask this person some medical questions to make sure they're, they're healthy enough to do this job. But, it, but during the interview phase, uh, generally an employer can't ask any medically related questions at all. And I believe that, that somebody else is going to address how to handle a gap in their resume. Okay. Do you want to address that? <clears throat> Sure. 
Sure. In, with resumes, if you don't want to talk about um, your treatment or explain a gap um, in your resume, there are ways to organize it so that's not as obvious. So you, instead of chronologically, you could uh, arrange your resume according to skill type or type of job. Um, the other thing is, if depending on how long the gap is, if you do it by year and exclude the month, that can, can also sometimes sort of cover things up a little bit. Um, but you want to be prepared if people do ask questions for it, the, to have the answers ready, whether you decide to tell or not. Um, you know, you need to decide that beforehand and then figure out how you're going to answer those questions. Um, and in terms of whether to tell or not, it's sort of more of a personal question, but if you do decide to tell, then it's good to frame, you know, sort of tell the very basics. I had a health problem. It's over. Um, it's made me stronger and, you know, more ready to fill this position because of X, Y, and Z. So sort of turn it back into how qualified you are for this position, because really that's all the person really wants to know. Thank you. And Deborah, again, can you just stress the issue of really not having to disclose health problems in an interview, just so that people are clear about that? Yes, absolutely. Um, a person is not, during the initial interview, a person is not required to disclose any health issues at all. Sometimes when people come and talk to me about a gap in their resume, I We'll ask them to think about other things that they might have been doing during that period. Perhaps they've been writing or um, focusing on other interests and to stress that. If they decide not to disclose, they can stress other, other things that they've been doing during that period. Um, but most definitely it's not required that they disclose any health issues at all um, during the initial interview phase. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Carolyn, some, some of my clients have said uh, when asked about the gap, um, I had uh, family obligations at that time, but they're resolved. Mm -hmm. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. A lot of options then. Thank you. Our next question, please. Thank you. Our next question is from Anita. Go ahead, please. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you, Anita? What's I'm your question? Fine. I have a question. Um, there was a mention um, by um, Dr. I'm sorry, um, Dr. Orris. Yes. yes. Um, she mentioned oral treatments, and I wanted to know: is there oral uh, chemotherapy, and what are the advantages? And are the side effects different? Are the side if there is an oral chemotherapy, are the side effects different from the traditional chemo? Okay, well, Anita, thank you for that excellent question. I'm going to ask Dr. Orris to address that in a general way because we're talking about so many different types of cancers. But Dr. Orris, could you address that? And sure. Um, we use many different types of oral therapy, and again, as Carolyn said, you know, depending on the type of malignancy that we're treating. Some of the oral agents that we use in breast cancer or in prostate cancer are called hormonal therapy, and that's very often a pill that's taken once a day. Another example of oral therapy is, in fact, oral chemotherapy, and there are some chemotherapy drugs that are available in pill form. There's a medicine called Zolota, which we use, or capecitabine, which is used in treating breast cancer and sometimes some gastrointestinal malignancies. And that's a well-tolerated drug that you take at home and does not require coming in to the treatment center for an intravenous infusion. Another type of oral therapy that we use are the oral targeted biologic agents. And many of these agents are used for treating types of lung cancer, uh, certain types of breast cancer, 
and even other GI malignancies or hematologic malignancies, certain types of lymphoma or leukemia. So we have many types of treatments that can be given orally, and the side effects vary depending on the drug. But commonly with these agents, with either the chemotherapy drugs or the biologic drugs, we see as side effects some GI problems, maybe some upset stomach or a little bit of nausea, and sometimes diarrhea. Those are seen with both the biologic treatments as well as the chemotherapy treatments. And we also sometimes see problems with skin, skin rash or um, redness and peeling and sensitivity of the skin with these oral agents. It is generally uh, manageable in terms of side effects for the oral agents, but again, close communication is really important with your oncology team. Um, since people are taking medicine at home and not necessarily coming into the office that frequently, it is really important if you do develop a side effect that you let your healthcare team know early before that side effect really gets serious and starts getting more difficult to control. And in general, in terms of side effect management, let us know sooner rather than later. Don't wait and see, oh, it's just going to get better by itself. If you don't feel well after your treatment, even having done whatever the doctors and nurses recommended for prevention, call, email, send up smoke signals. Let us know that you're having a problem and we'll try to intervene sooner or make adjustments for the next cycle so that those side effects um, don't act up. In terms of the hormonal therapies for breast cancer and, and um, prostate cancer, the side effects are different. These aren't chemotherapy drugs, and there uh, the side effects tend to be uh, somewhat easier to manage, although sometimes they're very difficult. Women who have been suffering hot flashes certainly know that those are difficult to manage. Excellent. Thank you very much. That's a very comprehensive answer to that question, Anita. That's a great question. Um, thank you. And um, some really important tips. And I think what Dr. Oretz has said is so important is that keeping that communication open with your healthcare team is just so critically important. Um, our next question, please. Thank you. Our next question is from Karen. Go ahead, please. Uh, yes. Um, is, uh, thank you so much. Um, I don't really have – I'm 55 years old. And I don't really fit into this. This is not the right workshop session, but I never find one that is. Um, in the past three years, I've had three cancers re and um, followed by a bilateral mastectomy, three separate uh, primary cancers. And I also uh, took care of my brother before his death due to pancreatic cancer. And Karen, did you have a question for us? Right. So I don't really have much of a work history. I was a volunteer most of my life, even though I have an undergrad from, you know, uh, University of Chicago. I'd like to work. I'd like to get started somehow. I'd like to do something that's kind of social and that isn't really low-paying or minimum wage. Mm -hmm. Is there some place I can go in order to sit down and talk with somebody who knows about getting into the workplace with a you know, without a work history, even though I had, like, a top-flight education, and who also knows about, you know, sort of like women and, and cancer. Okay, well, I want to thank you, Karen. That's an excellent question. I suspect it's a question that perhaps a number of women on the call or men on the call may have. So um, I thank you for raising that issue. Um, actually, you know, one thing I certainly do want to recommend 
as Pat Spicer had mentioned earlier, is that certainly to contact the staff at Cancer Care. You know, we have a staff of 60 master's level trained oncology social workers, and we're here to provide help to people who are really struggling with issues of brown workplace issues around somehow getting back into the workforce, um, around re-entry into the workforce. So please do take advantage of those services. We've also heard about Campus and Careers, a wonderful resource as well, lots of information as well. Pat, do you want to comment further on this? Yes, I do. Uh, many municipalities or counties have programs for people who ha are returning to the workforce after long periods of time. Um, they will offer uh, career counseling, they will offer um, aptitude tests, and they usually uh, uh, without any kind of fees. So you might want to contact your county department of social services or your town's department of social services and find out if they have anything that's available. Um, they can be wonderful resources in terms of helping you decide um, on a career, and sometimes the local colleges, whether it's a community college or a university, have programs that will help you identify uh, areas of strength and uh, will do an assessment that can help you get started on a career path. Excellent. Thank you. Our next question. I think our next question is from Stephanie. Go ahead, please. Yes, hi. I think this is a wonderful seminar. I'd like to ask you, I recently finished my work in November. I'm a social worker and a psychiatric nurse, and I worked part-time and I was just laid off. My question is, I had side effects from my treatment. My treatment was finished. I had surgery December 2006 and February 2007 for breast cancer. I had stage 2 breast cancer, and I also had total auxiliary node dissection. My, question, my main question is I need to work part-time, not full-time. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to what you were saying about returning to work, but my question is many agencies ask me, how come you can't work full-time? And I get that all the time, and I want to know how do I word it? How do I say I need three, four days a week? I can't do full-time. I cannot tell them that I have peripheral neuropathy in my hands and pain in my I have post-breast pain syndrome. So this is an excellent question, Stephanie. This is, I want to thank you. That's an excellent question. I'm going to ask Deborah, first of all, to address this from a legal perspective, that you first of all have the right to ask for the days you want to work. Deborah, can you just comment on the right to work part-time versus full-time? Sure. I mean, and it's, it certainly is different for somebody who's working and wants to transition from full-time to part-time as opposed to somebody who's, who's returning to the workplace and wants to work part-time. And again, um, I, I mean, I generally suggest that during the initial interview phase, a person discloses as little medical information as, as possible. They're not required to disclose any medical information, but perhaps um, if they're applying for a job, let's say that is full-time and they only want to work part-time, they might have to give an explanation as to why they, they, they would like the reduced hours. But generally what I'll suggest is that a person look for a job that's going to fit what their needs are not disclose any medical any medical history and then once they have the job they can discuss with their employer what accommodations might be necessary so so during the initial phase you know to to, to try and find a job that's gonna that's gonna meet your needs, and then once you have the job, you can go to your employer and say, you know what, I can do the essential functions of this job. However, I do need you to accommodate me in this way because of of my medical history. Excellent. Thank you. Our next question. Thank you. Our next question is from Marie. Go ahead, please. 
Yes, your question, Marie? Okay, I think mine was kind of similar. Um, I'm currently um, metastatic breast cancer, so I'm on uh, my first treatment didn't work. I worked for six months, and then I was out on short-term disability. I'm now going to long-term because my uh, side effects of um, oral chemo at, the time, at this time. So I guess the main question was the same thing. Eventually, when I do feel like I might be able to go back to work <clears throat> and explaining the gap, um, and you, obviously you say, well, my last company, are, are, they are, are they allowed to disclose if they call for, um, for a reference or something like that, um, the fact that you left due to disability? Oh, that's an excellent question, Marie. Uh, Deborah, could you address that? Sure. And the laws about what an employer can tell someone who goes, who calls for a reference are not very clear. I mean, it's generally based, based on what we call case law as opposed to actual statutes or laws that are, that are in place. But generally an employer will not disclose that um, somebody has left for disability leave. Um, it's, it's often been, been a concern. And um, not because there's any law that requires that, but in practice, most employers who are called for a reference who don't want to give a positive reference will generally say, you know, yes, this person worked here and confirmed when the, the time period that they worked there without giving any negative feedback. But also employers generally will not disclose that somebody is, has um, left their job for medical reasons or for disability. And Kate, do you want to address um, anything further with that question? Um, no, just that um, for the last couple of callers, they should all know that we have free online career coaching on our website, and these are career counselors who can help you work on your resume, help you find openings um, part-time, full-time, and work through all of these issues on a one-on-one -on -one basis. So. If you visit our website, um, that's a great resource. And do you want to give the website again, even though everybody has it in the materials, because I could see everybody seeing, oh, I want that. So do you want to go ahead <laughs> and give them that website? It's cancerandcareers.org. So that could be very helpful to a number of our last callers. Thank you, Kate, for adding that. That's very important for people to know. Our next question. Thank you. Our next question is from Laura M. Go ahead, please. Um, can you hear me? Yes, Laura, yes. Oh, okay. Um, a question I have is for Deborah regarding the uh, Family Leave Act. Does that have to run, uh, is the word contiguously or uh, simultaneously with a disability? I, I'd like it not to. I'd like to be able to take short-term disability and then use my Family Leave Act. Can I do that? Well, that really yeah. would be up to the – oh, sorry. That really would be up to the employer, but if the re employer requires that it run simultaneously with your short-term disability, then they, they do have the right to do that. So um, it's, it depends on the employer's policy, but, you know, if they require that while you're out on short-term disability, you start the use of your family medical leave, then, then they, they certainly have the right to do that. Is that done? Uh, can you say a little bit more about that? Is it something that's a frequent practice? Is it... Um... It's frequent. Most employers require that while somebody's on short-term disability, they also have applied for and be approved for family medical leave. Our next question. Thank you. Our next question is from Carletta. Go ahead, please. Hi. Uh, yes, I have a question regarding uh, long-term care insurance. 
Um, I did not apply for that prior to being diagnosed with breast cancer, but obviously have thought about it since. Um, I'm wondering what the average plan um, would require or, or whether or not they would allow it once a person has this diagnosis. Deborah, could you address that? I do know that many of these insurance policies have what they call pre-existing condition exclusions so that if you apply for in insurance um, after after cancer has been diagnosed, um, uh, they may deny it based on, on the pre-existing diagnosis um, or other, other, other health reasons as well. But Excellent question. Um, uh, Carolyn, I'd just like to yes. um, weigh in on that. For some um, long-term insurance policies, again, they will look at prior pre-existing condition, but some of them have a time period um, where if you have been free of any kind of illness or treatment for, say, five years or seven years, uh, that they will then allow it. And sometimes your state health insurance commission may also be able to offer you some additional information about this. So I know all of you are in different states, but all of you do have health insurance commissions, and they actually often have information about this, um, as well as some of your local representatives. These are very critically important issues that you're raising, and um, so that um, there is a body of information out there for you to, to access that. Our next question. Thank you. Our next question is from Mary J. Go ahead, please. Um, yes. Um, I was denied uh, dis or ruled against discrimination for receiving the lowest uh, raise the year I came back to work in my department and wondered if I do have enough cause to file a lawsuit. Okay, that's, a, uh, that's of course, a very, that's an excellent question, a general question in terms of I'm going to ask Deborah to address in a general way because sure. clearly not knowing all the specifics, but if uh, you could give some helpful guidelines just to consider in this for everyone on the call who may be wondering about these type of issues. Absolutely. Um, whenever somebody feels that they've been discriminated against because of health or other reasons, generally the inquiry is going to be, you know, was this person treated differently because they have a, because they have cancer or another medical diagnosis? Or was this something that was based on a legitimate business reason? Um, whether it's that, I mean, I think we're all aware of, of tough economic times right now, whether it's because of, of poor performance for other reasons unrelated to health. Um, but generally in these circumstances, I'll suggest that somebody do file a complaint with either the EEOC or their state human rights law. Many, many states have human rights law where a person can file a complaint because that agency will do an investigation. And even if the agency determines that there's not enough evidence to show cause, a person still has the right to file a lawsuit. So even though filing is, a, is required before you file a lawsuit, even if, for example, the EEOC says we don't have enough facts or we don't have enough information to make a determination, or in our opinion, no discrimination has happened, if the employee feels strongly that the EEOC EOC is incorrect, they still do have the right to, you know, to talk with attorneys and file a lawsuit. So the most important thing, I think, is to consult with an attorney who's an employment specialist and see if your case has merit and, and 
where to go from here. And do you want to just say a few words about the EEOC, what, you know, what they're actually there? I know you've mentioned them before, but they're such an important um, organization. I think many people don't realize it's, uh, the scope of it. Sure. Um, the, the EEOC, or as I said before, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is an organization, and one of their roles is to, is to oversee and implement the Americans with Disabilities Act so that when somebody feels that the, the law has been violated and that they have been discriminated against, whether it's because of their disability or other factors, whether it's perhaps based on their sex or their race, um, they can file a complaint and the EEOC will investigate to determine if their complaint has merit. Um, if their complaint does have merit, then the EEOC will, um, if the employee requests, would conduct a full hearing to make a determination as to what, if any, damages they may be entitled to and also can order that a person who's been terminated is reinstated to their position. Uh, an employee can decide not to go with uh, the EEOC for a hearing and as an alternative file a lawsuit in court. But, um, you know, as I said a few times, it, it is required that if somebody's contemplating a lawsuit under the ADA that they do first um, file a complaint with the EEOC. And, again, whenever anybody feels that there's any discrimination or that they're being singled out or treaty, treated unfairly or perhaps there's some retaliation because they've taken a medical leave or because they've disclosed that they have cancer, that the first step is is generally to talk with an attorney to to discuss you know, to discuss the the merits of your case. Uh, Carolyn, too, there's a very good resource in the Cancer Legal Resource Center. Uh, they have attorneys who will provide one-to-one matches with volunteer attorneys, and you can discuss the, what your issues are beforehand before you lay out money for a regular attorney fee. And that's a, that's a resource you can get from the staff at Cancer Care, so you can certainly yes, ab- absolutely, excellent. Well, I have to say, I know we could go on all afternoon because I know there are many other questions. I want to thank our speakers who've really been just outstanding. I really I'll give them all a round of applause. Um, and I also want to thank all of you who've asked such excellent questions. Now we know you asked those questions to really get some help for your specific uh, situation or questions that you have. But in asking your questions, you end up really helping everybody on the call because it gives our speakers a chance to further elaborate on points that you have raised. And I want to thank all of you who've been listening. Now, if you didn't get to ask your question, remember, Cancer Care is here and you can call us. And I want to just go over with you all the services that you can access from Cancer Care. I want to remind you that this is a one-hour education program and that in planning a program like this, we recognize that you all have many needs that go far beyond the scope of one-hour program. And many of your excellent questions really were questions that we could spend much more time addressing. And I know there are more questions that we didn't get to answer that um, you'll probably have now or may have developed in the next couple of days. So um, we at Cancer Care have a staff of over 60 master's level trained oncology social workers. And they are here to provide a host of services, from practical and financial assistance to counseling, to talking to somebody about their concerns. We have a number of both telephone and online support groups. We have a lot of publications and materials. We have a very active website, lots of information on the website. And we have a featured area of our website called Ask Cancer Care with a section on cancer in the workplace. So we have a lot of materials that you can access from Cancer Care. 
And you've also heard about the wonderful resources um, at, of course, all the other organizations, but particularly I want to highlight uh, Kansas and Careers, where they really have just wonderful resources on their website as well. Now, I mentioned to all of you that you're going to be getting in the mail from us an additional handout, actually either in the mail or electronically, depending on how you registered. Um, you will be getting materials about just your employment rights so that you have all the information about the ADA and the FMLA and the EEOC. So you have that um, to keep um, additional resource material. You should have that within the next week. Most importantly, I don't want anyone to feel you're alone as we conclude our program today. I want you to feel that we at Cancer Care are with you every step of the way and that you can call us at 1-800-813-HOPE at any time for help with any of your concerns or questions that you may have. I really want to thank you all for participating today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the program. You may disconnect and have a wonderful day.